The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world. In America, the rich history of car culture runs deep as technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein, former publisher of Automotive News, is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars, from industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome to SiriusXM's Cars and Culture. I'm Jason Stein in Detroit. How exactly does the son of a successful contractor from Louisville, Kentucky, decide he wants to become a race car driver? How does a kid who attended a military institute, who drove a taxi in New York City, who was a lumberjack, a janitor, a farmhand, a sod layer, and a waiter, become an international sensation, a poster boy for a new movement, and an extra on Miami Vice in the 1980s, rubbing elbows with Crockett and Tubbs. How does Danny Sullivan become Danny Sullivan? What a long storied tale, filled with the stuff that Indy 500 legends are made of, filled with Hollywood intrigue, the stuff that makes for the cover of People magazine as well as Sports Illustrated. It was not a solitary journey for Sullivan to become a race car driver. He had huge help from a myriad of people along the way, folks instrumental in making Danny Sullivan the modern-day race car driver seen as more glamorous to a wider public. Danny was transformational, perhaps even before his mind-bending spin and win at Indianapolis 37 years ago, pushing Mario Andretti again out of the winner's circle and propelling Sullivan to 30,000-foot status. Mario Andretti being chased by Danny Sullivan. Sullivan darts out, pulls alongside Mario Andretti. It's a drag race down the main stretch. Can Sullivan pull Andretti into the first turn, Ron Carroll? Sullivan, it is. Danny Sullivan gets him. Danny Sullivan gets him. No, he's squirrely. No, he's spinning. Danny Sullivan spins, but he goes around twice and gathers it. Absolutely incredible. Danny Sullivan spun in front of Mario Andretti gathered the car back up and continues on, and Sullivan only fell back to second place. Larry Henry, they're coming to you. And Danny, this race is likely to be remembered for the one remarkable moment with just a little more than 80 laps to go when you spun twice and came out of it. Your frame of mind after that, were you able to completely block that particular moment of danger out? Well, I looked at it this way. The sun was shining on me. That, If I got away with that and was still in the race and was still in second place, somebody was looking after me. And I figured if we could do that and still come back, we, uh, we had a good shot at it. And I knew that I could uh, run with just about anybody, and uh, I knew I had to measure on Mario, so we were just looking for to stay out of trouble. And then when that happened at the restart with all those guys down there, and we got through that, I knew we were making it home. After that win, Sullivan said that Andretti refused to speak to him for a year after that fateful day. But Sullivan was always in his own element. He raced on the global stage in Formula One, yes. But Indy and that magical win did more for a sport than he could have even imagined, all of which had its own mystical nature given where Danny came from and where he went from there. As Dutch Mandel, the executive producer of this show, wrote when Sullivan was inducted into the Motorsports Hall of Fame of America, the Sullivan the public doesn't know is far more interesting than the Sullivan that they did know. Danny's a networker beyond scope, with a contact list 500 miles long a person who connects people together better than anyone else. And after all of these years, he's still that guy. He's a steward in Formula One, visiting at least five tracks a year to lend his support to the world's most glamorous circuit, where he ran for 15 races in 1983. 
and Danny Sullivan is still loyal to Indy, where he will visit this May for the first time in many years, taking his seat to watch that historic start and the dive into turn one and the memories of spinning past Andretti to watch his own world spin out of control in a great way. Hollywood Danny, Indy 500 champion, the man with a million jobs before settling into the cockpit of a race car and never letting off the gas. As our month of Indy guests continues, the 1985 winner of the 500 is my guest today. This is Danny Sullivan on Cars and Culture with Jason Stein. Well, Danny, what an awesome experience to share the microphone with you. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Enjoying everything. Looking forward to to uh, Indianapolis, everything, Hall of Fame, and uh, and haven't been back for a while like a lot of folks because of the pandemic and other reasons, and uh, looking forward to a very, very exciting 500. Yeah, so when was the last time that you were at the track? Uh, would that be three years ago? I think it was actually four to five years ago, and uh I was going to go last year, but they had a limited amount of seats and uh, passes for everybody. So I thought maybe I should uh, bow out and let somebody else do it. And I just didn't want to get involved in massive crowds and all that. I just thought wasn't fair to everybody else or, any, you know, in that kind of scene. So I bowed out. What will it mean for you to go back this time? Well, I think, first of all, it'll be the first time since... Uh, since RP bought the Speedway and of course, uh, you know, owns the series and I'm excited to see the changes um, and so forth. Uh, but also it's, it's such a great race. It always is a nail biter, always thrilling and uh, a lot of new faces there and a lot of old faces. So it'd be good to catch up with everybody. And, and uh, I'm, I'm very excited about being, going back. Is there a moment when you go back to the track that you take a minute to reflect on everything that occurred for you there? I imagine the, the, the flood of memories has got to be real. I think the memories, it just brings back and it's more than just like the, the spin or the win and all, all that. It's just the, the time that we spent there. Now, I didn't do it as many years as some of the uh, other drivers have done it and don't go back as regular as, as they do. But, you know, I'm still there, you know, 12 years. And, and of course, it was more of the month of May. It was a longer stint than they have right now. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of experience. Indianapolis in itself, not just the Speedway, has changed substantially. Yeah. Downtown, everything, the, the growth there. Um, and I think that uh, when you see all that stuff, it's not quite the way it was before. Look at just Speedway. Just look at the Main Street right there in Speedway. Uh, how much that's developed and used to be pretty funky back in the day. And uh, it's great to see the growth. And I think under RP and what's going to happen and the excitement of the competitiveness of the IndyCar series, I think you're going to see it grow even more. You know, but a year ago we had Roger on the show right after the the last running of the 500 and talked about what that meant to him. And, you know, he talked about the emotion connected to it all and the fact that, now, finally, of course, with, you know, COVID being, um, you know, what it, what it was and how it affected um, the race two years ago, it was so important for him to bring some normalcy back to, to the track. I want to ask you about the captain. Why is he as successful as he has been? You raced for him. 
he has on a, a banner that used to be up on the back of some of the tracks when he had Nazareth, uh, which I was a partner with, but Michigan, all that. It says effort equals results. And mm -hmm. Roger lives by that. And no, he looks under every stone for every detail. Um, his attention to all that stuff is second to none. And what we all forget was that Roger in his day before he started really his business empire, um, he was one of the best sports car drivers in the world. That's right. Very right. creative with it. Remember, was it the Xerox Oldsmobile or something back in the day? But as a driver, um, he was great and very competitive. And he never lost that edge. And I think when you work for Roger, you realize that he's pushing the envelope as hard as anybody in the in the garage. And uh and that's infectious and that is, it pushes you to do better and so forth. And uh, so I think that's why he has a success. Plus for him, the 500 is, is the race bar none. You know, he wants to win the Indianapolis 500. You, you could, championships are great and other races are great, but Indy 500 for him is the, is the pinnacle. Uh, yeah, as okay. it is for most of us, but but I think that's why he drives so hard to do that. And can you imagine what the emotions he must have had that year back in the '90s when neither car with two two-time champions didn't qualify? I mean, yeah. after what, all that effort, yeah. after all, all that effort, and uh, but I think that just drives him more. That just makes him more competitive. And doesn't want you know learns from his mistakes, analyzes everything. Okay, why did we have a failure? Not not he's not stomping up and down yelling screaming back you know doing any of that it's okay why did we fail let's find out the reason let's make sure that doesn't happen again and that's the guy you want as your boss almost an engineer's mind to some extent to some extent although engineer slash racer because ultimately, you know, sometimes the engineers just want to keep engineering everything. At some <laughs> point, Roger says, hey, we're going racing. And I and I was a there was a very good lesson back in the day. Remember when we had the Ilmore engine? And uh, and I remember talking to Carl Kinehofer that built the engines for Roger for forever. And he said, we, we work at getting the most power that we can, but the most reliability. Okay. They'd rather give up a little bit of horsepower to have the reliability because if you if your engine fails, you're you're done. And so that was that he was always more about making the thing as competitive as possible, but finishing races and making it reliable. And I think that's a, a big factor for for his success. When you earned a seat in his car as a pilot of one of his cars, it had to be just an enormously gratifying experience. You know what, when I first joined, I didn't realize how big a deal it was until, because I hadn't been in IndyCar for very long. Um, I'd only really done uh, three races one year and then really did the year with Doug Shearson and the Domino's Pizza and then signed with Roger. And so, um, and I'd raced so much overseas that I, I knew the legend, obviously, and the reputation and, and his success. But remember, in, in those days, he hadn't won a championship for a while, you know, since since Rick had won. It had been four or five years. So, you know, overall, um, it had gotten competitive. 
And but once you get in there and you realize the attention to detail and how hard he's focused and how driven he is and how that creates with everybody else. That's why if you look at the people that work for him too, most of them were there for a long period of time. Look, Rick's Rick's still there. Yeah. Okay. And so, but how many of the people that worked for him that wanted to get out of the racing that went into other parts of the business, other jobs in the organization? And uh, I think that just goes to show Roger, Roger looks after his people. And, and that's one thing that he's very, he's very loyal to, to most of his people. So the son of a successful contractor from Louisville, Kentucky ends up driving a race car for Roger Penske. Yeah. I mean, Danny Sullivan. <laughs> Who would have thought, right? <laughs> Who would have thought? And I mean, you were, you were a troublemaker growing up in Louisville. Yeah, right? I was, or so I've read. I was not. Uh, I was not the best for my parents. I wasn't. I didn't get in trouble much with the law. You know, I wasn't that kind of. But I, you know, had a wild streak and stuff like that. And then, and then of course, Vietnam War dropped out. Um, you know, went to New York, and that's where um, a friend, a mentor, Frank Faulkner, came into the picture because he, I'd grown up around all his books, auto course, automobile years, all his pictures on the wall, everything, even though he was an academic pediatrician. There's also another connection. He was very close with Leon Mandel. Okay. Who is okay. the father well, of the executive producer of the show, Dutch right. Mandel. And, and that's how I met Leon was through, was through Frank because Leon was also very close friends with Peter Revson back in the day and, and so forth. And so when I went, when he sent me to Europe to the driving school and they said, okay, you've got talent and, and I could pursue it. Um, Frank called in a lot of, uh, of friends for advice and so forth. But anyway, and, and that's how, believe it or not, it got to Roger because I had had a successful se season with Doug Shearson and we were nitpicking over some stuff in the contract and Roger called Frank Faulkner and said, does Danny have a contract for next year? Frank says, I don't know, let me check. And I said, no, because we weren't there. And Roger, as always, <laughs> called and said, can we meet? And mm -hmm. that's, that's how it started. You and know? fate shook your hand, exactly. Yeah. It, let's get back to Dr. Frank Faulkner, a family friend. He found you in New York. You were driving, but it wasn't race cars. You're driving yellow cabs, right? Well, <laughs> When he found me, I'd actually stopped the yellow cab stuff and I was working as a waiter. But yes, I drove for, for a while because- You were a taxi driver. You were Robert he, De Niro. Well, yeah, no, <laughs> I, was, I did it for a short period. But when, when you went there and I you know, decided I wanted to spend some time there, there was two jobs that you could get. Um, and that was a taxi driver and it was awful dangerous in those days and, um, and a waiter. And so I, I, I worked them both for a while and then realized I was meeting more people as a waiter when I was going to do driving people 20 blocks or 10 blocks, you know. So it was, anyway, it was all fun. It's all part of New York. Well, yeah. some, some wouldn't know that, you know, not, it, not only were you a waiter, a cab driver, you're also a janitor. You were a hand on a chicken farm. You were a lumberjack. And you're a race car driver. Um, so take me to Mr. Faulkner sending you to the Jim Russell driving school in England for your 21st birthday. Yeah. Did you look at him and go, why are we doing this? Or, or, well, did you, or did you say, okay, I really want to do this? Well, he, so at the time you couldn't race um, without parents permission until you were 21 years old. 
and I wasn't quite 21 years old. I was 20 at the time. And uh, on the advice of uh, Sir Jackie Stewart, he said to Dr. Frank, he said, let's find out if the lad has any talent and let's send him to Jim, meaning Jim Russell. Because it was, it was, remember, it was all pretty small then. It wasn't quite as big, corporate and all that. And so for my 21st birthday, Frank sent me to the Jim Russell School uh, at Snetterton in England with the caveat that if, if Jim said I had talent, then I could pursue a career, but otherwise I had to return to university. And, uh, and I got to tell you, when I sat down in the car the first time, and we're, you're going to drive faster to the grocery store around in 95 than, than, than you know, we were allowed to drive when you start off with, with, with good reason. And, uh, and I thought, this is everything I've ever wanted to do in life. Wow. Right it was so, wow. it was so, it hit you then. Little Formula Fords, we're going, you know, 60 miles an hour, 70 miles around, around the corner or something like that. Uh, pretty mundane in the whole scheme of things. Um, but at the end of the deal, Jim said, uh, you know, and I believe he told everybody this, that I was one of the more talented guys to come out of school. And, um, and I do believe he probably said that to keep people coming back for to be more racist, but it was good for me. It was good for me. So it was, uh, but that was the easy part. Now you're an American living in Europe or trying to live in Europe. No money. There's no, and I, I'm working as a waiter. Frank was a academic pediatrician. You know, I mean, he's, there's just no way. So through his connections, people like Augie Pass, Bill Kimberly from Kimberly Clark, all these guys that he knew back in his days, ACUS, SCCA, and so forth, they all chipped in, you know, small amount of money compared to what it is now. I lived in a boarding house opposite Brands Hatch, and that's how it all got started. And on weekends, I worked as a gopher for Ken Tyrrell, Jackie Stewart, and Francois Severo were the pilots there. So, so I got a lot of um, education from, from Sir Jackie on a lot through osmosis, but just watching him, what he was doing and how he was with public and, and silly things like signature and, you know, make it so people can read it, you know, don't, don't have a hen scratch type of thing mm -hmm. and all the things, because if you really think about it, Jackie was the first really true professional racer. Yeah. In terms of, I mean, how, Good for Rolex. He still had half the brands. I mean, he's just, he had that global presence and he right. was the first guy. So, and unfortunately, or fortunately, it was at a time when that's, that's when the sponsorship era really was having to start because of cost. So anyway. You slept in the back of vans, you wrenched on cars, um, and you just tried to focus your energy on competing in Formula Fords and Formula 3, open-wheel race cars, but you ran out of money and you had to go back to Kentucky. Yeah. <laughs> did, you think it, did you think it was over? Um, I was getting pretty tired of, of um, the nose and struggling for sponsorship and you know not having the money and, and you know look frank as i said was an academic i'm working two three jobs skip barber gave me a job to help on on some of the schools so i'd go do those you know tending bar waiting tables working from construction for my dad some to just try to get things to but i didn't want to get i didn't want to go back to school and get a, a 
I won't say a proper job, but a job because I, I wanted the flexibility that if I got a call, I could go do something. And that was, um, and, and you got a call. And I you got, got a call. call. Yeah. And, and uh, it, Louisville's own G Garvin Brown, the third, right. Yeah. Who, yes, for the, for those who don't know, Brown was the scion of the Brown Foreman distillery family makers of, of course, Jack Daniels. Yeah. <laughs> All of a sudden you had somebody who was going to support you. Well, it started off, um, it started off funny and rocky. And at first he said no. And then, you know, we kept bumping into each other. He'd come back to town. Uh, he lived in California. He'd come back to town. We'd go out to dinner. And finally I said, hey, I got this, I got this offer. I'm, I'm done. I'm about done. He said, well, come on, we'll go take a look at it. Come out to California. And uh, I had to get my dad to guarantee my airplane, my credit card, the airplane ticket. Because he said, no, I'll, ta I'll take care of everything. But, you know, so anyway. And we go out there and to give credit, um, there was a place, it was at Riverside. We didn't do the deal, um, but we were in the bar at the hotel where a lot of people stayed, including Mario and Alan Turner and stuff like that. And I remember we were standing there and I'd introduced him to Mario and, and Al Sr. And I left and I went to go, I think to use the head or whatever, you know, I'm going to the bathroom come back and and he said okay i'm going to put you on a retainer and mario had said hey let's help this guy out if you can let's let's go for it and that's literally how it started and there was a lot of false steps during that because you know again i don't have the knowledge the education of what to do and where to take garvin and so there was a few false steps and again leon mandel came back into the picture and mm -hmm. our can am here and did a book on it and and uh that helped and garvin and it just he he garvin really uh saved my career i mean he was the for me he was a renaissance man because he stepped in and and put his money where his mouth was and and it was all by the way it was never through the company it was all his private money it was just his inheritance mm -hmm. So all of a sudden you're, you're going through the Can-Am series and then you end up a few years later, you're an IndyCar and then you're right back to Europe in the biggest stage in racing. I mean, how old were you when you started racing Formula One? Uh, I did it in the, in the season was 83. So I was 33 years old. So I was late. I was a late bloomer. Um, but it was just one of the, uh, it was just one of those things that the opportunity came Ken gave a call to Frank, Ken Tyrrell, and said, um, we want to put Danny in a test. And, and Benetton was driving part of that because Benetton was trying to go into America in a big way. And they wanted an American presence if they could. So Ken says, well, I know this guy. And there was all kinds of people at the test. There was 10 of us, I think, eight, nine or 10 of us, uh, Stefan Johansson, you know, Bebby Gabbiani, I mean, all kinds of Bruno Giacomelli, all the guys at the time were Formula 2 or, or successful in Formula 3. And um, anyway, and uh, turned out to be uh, the most consistent and quickest in the end of, uh, uh, through the whole run. So I got invited to a test in Rio and uh, went down there for that and had a really good test. And by the way, I only drove the car in the whole, the whole, I was down there like eight days. They were tire testing for Goodyear. And I, I, I test, I think I ended up doing five laps in the car <laughs> because they were tire testing. And obviously it's hard for Ken to go to Goodyear. Hey, I want to test this guy. 
you know, for the, for the deal, um, for my drive. And it worked out good. But I, I can't tell you how many times I walked or rode around that track in Rio. <laughs> and wow. stood on every corner watching everybody test and listening to the gear changes, where they were breaking, trying to figure it all out. And it uh, worked out. Pinching yourself the entire time, I could imagine. Yeah, a lot. You know, and it's, you know, I had grown up, believe it or not, I mean, because of being in Formula Ford, Formula 3, some Formula 2 in Europe, some sports cars, I'd grown up more around European racing than I really had about around IndyCar racing. I had a lot more knowledge about, about it and knew more people in the sport. So, so it's, it has not been a solitary journey for you to get to the race car driver profile that, that you were for so long and you had help from people along the way. Why did they believe in you, Danny? You know, I, I don't know, just uh, trusting people. And, and uh, I think they knew my intentions were good. I wasn't trying to, you know, manipulate anybody or something like that. And, you know, different people helped. Uh, a girlfriend from Kentucky thought it would be good to buy a car for me so that her son could go and watch the races and, and uh, you know, things like that. But it was, but when she wanted the car sold to get the money back, it was sold like in six days and gave it back to her. And, you know, there wasn't any, I, I don't know. I think I was just straight up about it. I, um, I believed and there was enough, you know, we all get these. I think there's enough, um, a good result here or a win here in a Formula Four and a good result here and there. But it was very hard without the consistency and the money and, the, and a proper team to have consistent results. But I think enough people had seen the, the spike, if you like, and said, okay, let's give this guy a shot. So. Your, your win at Indy, and we'll, we'll talk about the spin because I'm sure it's, it's not the first time that you've talked about it. <laughs> but, your, but your win catapulted, there are some who have said that your win catapulted racing into a whole new direction, but more importantly, the profile of a race car driver into a different direction. So if Jackie Stewart, as you said, was the professional race car driver, the global professional race car driver, you became the Hollywood race car winner of the Indy 500. You, be, you became, you were on People Magazine and you were eventually in Miami Vice and you were, you were the poster guy for a new style of driver, um, you know, Hollywood, you were nicknamed. Yeah, right? Well, believe it or not, it goes back to Benetton Formula One. Okay. Long, Beach, Long Beach Grand Prix. Luciano Benetton asked to meet me in Westwood, where UCLA is, and um, on a street corner. And it was where all the mailboxes, remember there used to be USA Today, LA Times, New York Times, Wall Street, boxes just mined up. And, and so I knew Luciano quite well. His Italian and my English were on par, which to say was pretty minimal. We were okay at a dinner or something like that, just kind of uh, talking broken English and broken Italian. But uh, I got a, uh, a friend of mine who's now uh, unfortunately gone, who Claude spoke like six languages. And we met there and he said, look, I see your name in the paper. I see Tyrrell's name in the paper. I don't see Benetton's name in the paper. How do we get that done? And um, Claude translated without even asking. He said, well, in America, you need to have a PR person for Danny. 
And he said, well, get Danny a, a, a good PR person. And he introduced me to a guy named Alan Nirov, who was with Rogers and Cowan, who was really an entertainment uh, firm. They did movies, stars, all that. He had all these people. And he had one athlete, and that was Ozzie Smith, that oh. played shortstop for, shortstop for the Cardinals. For the Cardinals. And so I met with Alan, and he and I got along great. And Luciano said, okay, do it. So we had so much success that year when I was in Formula One that when I went to IndyCar and with Doug Shearson, I kept it on. And that's, and he was the, he was really the architect. He, by the way, he's now the CEO of Rogers and Callan. Now, I mean, he's he never, but he, but he was the architect of the, the whole deal. And he and I've been, I mean, we, we were really good friends and, and so, but he changed the, the outlook of what was, in, he said, he said to me one time, he says, well, what do you want out of all this? And I said, don't laugh. I said, I, I want to be, I, I'd like to be on the Wheaties box. No. Not because I really wanted to be on the Wheaties box, but it was the, but they only put somebody at the top of the sport that was a recognizable on the deal. I, I, be, I was the finalist on the Weedy box. I got beat out by a guy named Michael Jordan. Go figure. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But I mean, but but MJ, but I, I would have voted for MJ. I mean, it was the right call, but you you see, but, but, he, yeah. but he, we wanted to get the publicity. And this I learned a lot from Sir Jackie outside of the sport. We got automotive news, auto week, auto sport, motoring. The, you were in that because you were in the top echelon of the sport. If you're going to be viable for a sponsor, you want to be have a broader um, platform and fan following. Because if it comes down to it, and you're you're over here with two other drivers, you all look the same, have the same results, you're vir virtually all the same. What's going to set you apart for that sponsor? Well, it paved the way for many other race car drivers. Uh, you know, effectively to do the same thing. I think of Jeff Gordon, uh, another another guest on this show, who was who was Madison Avenue. He was he was Boy Wonder. He had he and was and Jeff and Jeff and John Bickford said they modeled it after the off track stuff. They modeled it after what I had done in the deal. David Coulthard said the same thing. They modeled it after after that. But for me, it was it was it wasn't because I was looking to get my name in lights. It was looking to be uh, a, a um, asset for the sponsors, okay? Because we're we're all it's all driven by the money. It's all driven by the money, right? right. If we don't have the sponsorship, you're you're not going to get you you know you're not going to get in the team. It's like so, the American space program in the '60s, no bucks, no Buck Rogers. Exactly. <laughs> what a great uh, what a great quote. A great quote. But you yeah. know, it actually, believe it or not, think about it later on in my career with Penske, okay. It, it happened to an extent when Penn, we had three cars, Pennzoil, Rick Mears, Emerson, myself. When Pennzoil was pulling out, well, there was no way Rick was going anywhere from Roger, okay? And Emerson was part of the tie to Marlboro because of his relationship back when he won the world championship. I mean, which is, you know, get it. So I was a short guy with a, you know, with a stick, if you like, in that, in that, so you had to look at it, but that's even a, an example of how important a sponsorship came 
and even in Formula One to, to this day, um, when Santander, the bank, the Spanish bank, went to Ferrari, they went because Alonso was going. That's and, right. And there's always been some tie-up sometime where somebody wanted to stay with a certain, you know, team because of that. And a lot of it's the relationship with the driver. So it was a natural back to Sir Jackie Stewart, Goodyear, Ford, Rolex. I mean, you know, look and look what he did with Ford later on when he got him to fund the team, bought the team from it, you know, I mean, that's how that was because of that relationship. After the break, I'll continue my conversation with Indy 500 winner Danny Sullivan on Cars and Culture with Jason Stein. The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world in America. The rich history of car culture runs deep. Technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein, former publisher of Automotive News, is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars, from industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome back. I'm Jason Stein in Detroit. Now, a continuation of my interview with Indy 500 winner Danny Sullivan on Cars and Culture with Jason Stein. Your Indy victory, you spun, you won, and how did your world spin after that? Uh, Still going on, you know, to some extent, because it's still one of those magic moments, uh, for me anyway, I'm not saying for everybody, but but a magic moment that, uh, you know, you still get introduced that way. And, and uh, uh, I remember one time uh, uh, flying someplace and I had one Pocono and Michigan and Indy and uh, uh, the girl was, I was checking in for an airplane ticket and the girl goes, oh, you won the Indy 500? I said, yeah. She said, no, it's right here on your profile. It's right here. In the <laughs> you know, it didn't say anything about the two Pocono 500 wins. Or the oh, it did. It and didn't did it. <laughs> and so I think it was one of those, just those, you know, badges of, of things that happened. And it just, you know, I, I would have, my heart would have liked it not to have had spun and just gone on to win it. But, uh, but now it's pretty, it's a very cool thing. So today it's available everywhere and easily uh, searchable on YouTube and things of that nature. And I was watching it recently and listening to the commentators at the time talk, uh, you know, the ABC commentators, just amazed at what had occurred. I've never seen that before, they said. Do you ever watch the clip? Oh, yeah. I've, I've commentated on it probably, oh, gosh, thousands of times. You know, here we're going to play this back, it, which is fine. It's fine. It's funny because I still get uh, butterflies, you know, when I watch it going, oh, am I going to pull it off this time? I mean, I know it's silly, but <laughs> it's just one of those. Um, but it, there was, you know, thankfully it was Mario. Uh, thankfully we were further around the corner. If it had happened early on in the corner, I wouldn't have had the more the car a little bit more straight, you know. Yeah, he uh, ducked out of the way too. He ducked left. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that can easily, I mean, it's hard to miss a car on the which happened to me later in the race with tom sneva and how right. and and just missed tom and it, it's um you know but he you know mario's about his experiences are getting pretty cool head so it, it all worked out your your high speed pirouette uh sent sent your world into a whole new direction and all of a sudden you end up as danny tepper on <laughs> my, on miami vice as a race car driver on miami vice what was that like 
<laughs> Talk know, about culture. <laughs> yeah, no, you know what? Uh, Michael Mann, who was the producer for that, Michael's produced some fabulous movies and, and everything. He's a car nut. And and he's a little bit more of a muscle car guy, but he was, you know, he's a big Ferrari guy and so forth. And he asked me to do it. And, you know, remember in those days they had had Jim McMahon on and Glenn Fry from the Eagles and stuff right. like that. That's right. And so he tried to liven it up and he said, Would would you do this? And I thought, Hell yeah. I mean, how many people are gonna get it was the hottest show going and and it's like why not? And uh, and I said, obviously, as long as you don't, as, as you'll protect me and I don't get embarrassed too much. But it was uh, it was fun. It was good to work with Don and all all the group, and and uh, I had a blast doing it. So, you know. Let me ask you uh, some more philosophical questions about racing. Why do some of the world's best road racing drivers come from countries outside of America? I think it's more of uh, you know, America's one probably the only place that really has big time oval racing, okay, where it's a part of the culture. All those guys that grew up on midgets and sprints and dirt tracks, you know, and, and super late models and modifieds and, and so forth. Whereas everybody else's kind of culture from New Zealand, Australia, South America, everything, it's, it's road racing. And so they end up gravitating toward um, you know, trying to make it in Formula One and, and so forth. But that's the, that's kind of the platform that everybody gets their experience on. And, um, and I think the uh, European experience was really good because of the competitiveness of it, because England's a little bit like a, a melting pot. They're from all over the, all over the world, all over the world. And uh, when I lived in the boarding house opposite Brands Hatch when I was first starting, there was a, a guy in there from, I think, uh, Venezuela. There was a guy in there from Wales, an English guy. And there was one other guy from another overseas country. And it was just kind of like, and that was just one example of one boarding house. And I think that's just, uh, it's, it's their um, background. It's what they grow up with. Yeah, sure. If you were to assess um, different cultures and, and drivers from different countries, how do you think some of America's homegrown drivers would fare in among the pantheon of world best driver? I think that um, given the opportunity, there's the, the top racers that I've run against from American guys are just as good is anybody uh, that I've, I've raced against, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think the, the problem is you really have to want to do it to go to Europe, okay? Because it's a different, they're different cultures, different foods, different uh, ways they live, you know, just hours that stores are open. We're pretty spoiled as a whole in America. Everything's kind of at our fingertips. It's true, yeah. And, and we have one other thing is that we have a lot of options in America of racing. You know, why, why can I, why should I go overseas? I can do Indy cars. I do street races, ovals. I do all kinds of things. The Indy 500, NASCAR, I've got this, I've got all these options. Whereas a lot of the countries back, you know, from South America to, you know, New Zealand, Australia, it's basically if they can make it big in Europe, then they've got a shot to get 
someplace. And I think that that's the difference. You got to really want to go to Europe. But in terms of talent, our guys are just as good here as they are anywhere as anywhere else. Can you or would you put NASCAR drivers in that category of world best? Absolutely. Yeah, there's a real there's a real art to to driving a, a cup car uh, or all the NASCAR vehicles, but um, classes I should say vehicles. But the yeah, I mean guys like Dale Earnhardt that I I drove against some and and so forth. These guys are very talented. It's just a different platform. It's like saying, would you put would you put somebody like Sebastian Loeb, who's a rally guy, or OJ or any of these guys in the same category? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's just a different, uh, it's just a different platform. And Dario Franchitti, who's been on the show, will say that his struggles in the, in the cup circuit were real, that they, that it is an incredibly challenging vehicle to drive. Yeah. And multiple yeah, well, Indy 500 winner. Yeah. And look at, and look at Juan Pablo Montoya, who's as tough as they come and has as, as diverse a background in all kinds of cars. And he won, he won a couple of races down there, but he didn't dominate down there. And again, it comes back to a lot of other stuff as well. And one of the most important parts of all that, and I've said this about getting an American into Formula One, it makes a difference if you get them into a competitive team, okay? And and I'm not knocking the teams that they were with, Chips teams or anything like that. But if you're in the if if you're in a top team, a Hendrick or whatever, or even Penske in, in Cup racing or any of that stuff, it's uh, it helps. Michael Andretti has tried his hands in competing in formula one as a driver. Do you believe the lessons he learned in that short tenure there will serve him well in today's environment as a team owner? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that Michael, I, I mean this sincerely. I think if Michael had actually moved to Europe and, and, and that's hard, he's got a family there, you know, they were anchored well in, in Pennsylvania uh, everything. I know that's not an easy transition. Okay. But I think that if he had gone there and stayed and embedded himself more in the community, he would have been our third world champion. I mean, because mm -hmm. look at the gains that he made from the beginning of the season until the end of the season against arguably one of the best in the sport, Senna, and with one of the more difficult cars at the time to drive. Uh, of all of all time to drive. I mean, it was a very complicated deal, but Michael was right on par with him at the at the end of the deal. I think he just, you know, felt more comfortable back in in America. And uh, but I really believe talent wise, Michael could have been world champion. Yeah, you follow Formula One actively now. I'm uh, for for a long time now. I've been the Formula One driver steward. So I'm one of the guys that you don't see on the TV, thankfully. Um, but when they put on the bottom that it's under review or whatever, that's that's a number of us. No, there's usually only one driver each race, and I do four to five Grand Prix a year. I'll do Miami this year, um, Silverstone, Monza, and Mexico City. Uh, this okay. Year. And 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 your role there is to is to do what? We are. There's four stewards. There's a chief steward, a second, a driver steward, which had to be somebody that drove in Formula One in the past, and then a local steward. Um, that's sometimes very, very good because they're usually a, a Formula One steward, but they're from Italy, America. You know, there could be Tim Mayer, could be the steward, et cetera. Um, and we are basically, if there's an infraction, both technical or on the track, uh, 
we're kind of the judge and jury. Hmm. I, I don't mean to sound, we're trying to make a decision. We try to look after every, and be fair to everybody in the situation, but we also try to make the decision fast so that if somebody gets a five or 10 second penalty, for example, they have a chance to redo their strategy and get back out and win a race. Like, like Silverstone last year when Lewis got the 10 second penalty for the, for the uh, contact with Verstappen. He served the 10 seconds, but still came back and won the race. Yes, he yes, did. Strategy. So you try to make those decisions as fast as possible. So what was your analysis of the last race of last season? You know, that's a tough one. I don't, I, I wouldn't have wanted to have been Michael Massey, but remember something that wasn't the stewards. That decision on the restart was made by the race directors. That was race director, right? You know, that Michael Massey, who they've, who they've let go. And I think that it was, you, you don't think about, you try not to think about the points or anything in there, but you can't help with all the hoopla and the buildup. And he's now been doing 22 races. He's, you know, everybody's exhausted. He's traveling like a maniac all over the world, track inspections, this, that, and the other. Everybody's in his face over this, you know, do this, do this, do this. Um, he came under immense pressure, which I think was wrong, where the where the team principals could radio to him and, oh, what about this? What about that? Don't do this. Don't do that. That's wrong. He needs to make the decision. Um, and I, I think, unfortunately, when he only waved, if he had waved all the cars by, the race would have been under yellow. And yes. the team that all came and said, we'd rather not we don't want to finish under a yellow. We'd rather have, you know, it would have been kind of anticlimactic, especially that, that especially particular race. with what was on the line. <laughs> Everything was on the line. So he tried to do it. Okay, I'm going to let these five cars go. And, and so it bunched up. But and whether he knew that Max stopped and changed for tires, you know, and had soft tires on and Lewis had 41, he may not have even know, had that all going on because he's trying to clean up that accident for Latifi and get the workers off the track and everything. I mean, unbelievable pressure, you know, wow. and, uh, and so you don't, Great perspective. you know, and I think it's, it's, it's not unfair to criticize him, but I think it's unfair to um, unequivocally just say he's wrong and, and get rid of him. I mean, it's, it's a tough deal, but um, I think there was enough pressure to, you know, and uh, I can tell you, I can tell you one thing with the late Charlie Whiting, um, they wouldn't have been radioing in to talk to Charlie. <laughs> okay. Charlie just, he would have stopped that. He would have right shut off. it down. <laughs> yeah. Those guys look, well, I've got this. <laughs> Leave me alone. I know what I'm doing. Remember? And speaking of Hollywood, I mean, Netflix has certainly put a different oh. spotlight on Formula One. And this has become a little bit of a reality series to some extent. The circuit has, and you go back to the days when you raced it and, you know, and Bernie Ecclestone's control and the curtain was closed and nobody saw anything that was going on. And now it's wide open. In fact, it's, it's more than wide open. There are cameras everywhere on everyone. Yeah. It's, you know, I think with social media too, because Bernie kept social media pretty uh, eliminated or. Oh yeah. Locked it down. Yeah. And I think that uh, Liberty's done a fabulous job, you know, uh, Chase Carey and, and all, and Sean Bratches, those guys came with the idea for Drive to Survive. I mean, that was their, that was yeah. their baby. Sean's been and a guest on this show. Yeah. And it's changed, I think, the way, there are so many people that, that uh, 
didn't, that were in racing, the families didn't even follow it until Drive to Survive. I mean, I know more people now that drive, oh, I love it, I love it. You know, and, and I think because of that, it brought it into everybody's living room. Now, the pandemic probably helped that because more people were looking around, but the diehard fans are, are, are unbelievable what that did. So that added a pressure. And, um, and then the pressure of what we all forget is how much is at stake for those teams and for those drivers. I mean, Max is a world champion. You know, if it had, if it had finished the way it was, Max wasn't going to be world champion after having a stellar season. I'm not, I'm not favoring anybody one way or the other. I'm just saying, but it's now, you know, Lewis only has seven. I mean, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, but, uh, you know, but if you think about it, I mean, he lost to, he lost to Rosberg by one point in Abu Dhabi and then he lost on that. And the, the, the part that I think was probably the hardest for Mercedes and, and for Lewis is they had started off the season not very good. The car wasn't great. They had caught up and then they had really been dominant toward the end. Not only that, he had been dominant that race. I mean, they, he, he was, he was pulling away from those guys on lap on 41 lap tires. Yes. Yes. And, and to, so it wasn't like, you know, it got taken away from him that Max had, you know, been dominant. He, he got, you know, so I think all that just added to the drama. A few final things. You, you collect cars. What's your favorite? And you oh. can't, give, and you can't give me the child analogy here. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, uh, you know, believe it or not, um, I sold a lot of my cars and my motorcycles just because of, when I, when I moved to Florida, um, there just wasn't as many places to drive them. And I also had gotten to the point where, okay, I've done a lot, I've had them for a long time and I want to try something different. You know, I want to, I want to try to probably one of my favorite of all times. I had a little 59 a coupe Porsche. Okay. And it was a bit of an outlaw and I found it in England, but the guy that had bought it originally was a California musician and Andy Prill had an outlaw engine and, had break, and this thing was the most fun car to drive. It was just a hoot, but they all have their own personalities and, and, and highs and lows. That's why you buy them. I mean, some are, you know, I had a Lancia Aurelia to a Ferrari 330 GTC, Gullwing, you know, they're all, I'm not saying favorite child, but they all had their own personalities. Where's your super V powered Volkswagen Scirocco today? Uh, probably in a junkyard, I would imagine, but I have no idea. I gave it to my brother and then he sold it eventually to somebody and, and, and who knows, who knows, oh, you, but great times, great times. Do you regret not having that vehicle anymore? Um, there's some of them that I regret that I didn't keep back in the day. You know, I mean, I had a, I had a, um, what did I, I had a Porsche 73 RS lightweight mm. and I sold it and I, listen, I made great money. I can't complain, but I sold it so I could get a, a Tuthill rally car that we rallied in Europe that my wife rallied as well. Cause I didn't want to rally, uh, a, you know, a registered RS lightweight. And uh, anyway, they're all, listen, bikes. I had, I had a fabulous Lawwell. You know who Mert Lawwell is? No, I don't. On, on any Sunday. Okay. He was who Steve McQueen oh. emulated. Mert did 19 flat track championships in America and won 17 of them. Wow. Harley Davidson. Wow. 
Wow. I use that. I use that. The reason I bring it up, I use it all the time when they're talking about Lewis's and Schumacher seven championships. I go, you ever heard of this guy? <laughs> and he raced against Kenny, Kenny uh, Roberts, Freddie spent all those guys. I mean, he beat them all. So anyway, when you walk into the, the grounds at, at uh, Indianapolis for the first time now in four years, is there a favorite place that you want to sit? Is there a, is there a, a glimpse that you want to have a view a a purview that's a favorite of yours? I think the the biggest thrill is walking out of Gasoline Alley into the pit lane for me, especially on race day, because uh, it might be the same on, on carb day, but, you know, this year, I don't know what the crowd will be like, but when you walk out there race day, it's just the arena, if you like, just the atmosphere the collage of colors that you can't even see fate. It just, the whole hoopla, yeah. there's, nothing, there's nothing quite like that. Nothing quite like that. Yeah. Any Sullivan, thank you for sharing your thoughts on cars and culture. Thanks for being part of our culture. Thank you very much, Jason. I appreciate it. And your time. Thanks again to Indy 500 winner Danny Sullivan, and thanks for listening to Cars and Culture. You can follow us on LinkedIn and Facebook, as well as on Instagram, at Cars and Culture SXM, and on Twitter, at Cars and Culture. I'm Jason Stein in Detroit. We'll see you down the road. Morning, sunshine. I'm Robin Mead. Let's jump right in and get you ready. Morning Express on HLN is the bright way to start your day. Some of the other top stories today that we're following for you. With the latest news that affects you. There may be a breakthrough for a stimulus deal. People are being advised to cancel or postpone outdoor activities. Thank you for letting us be the ones to start your day. Morning Express with Robin Mead. Weekdays from 6 to 10 a.m. Eastern on HLN, Sirius XM 117. Hey, this is Karen Hunter, and at Urban View, we have a family of tough people. We are about making change. Who are willing to not just work, but to have a vision. We demand that the people take action, use their power to make change. That's what really Urban View and the Madison Show is all about. We invite you and we challenge you to create the world you want to live in. It's not your typical talk channel. Urban View, Sirius XM 126.